A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Liz Mosley, and usually you will find me on the other side of the table, but James Harding has selfishly gone on holiday and left me in charge. It is Monday, the 24th of July. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Corfu has become the latest Greek islands to issue evacuation orders as the country grapples with a series of devastating wildfires. Twitter has replaced its famous bird logo with an X on its website. The Israeli parliament has approved a key part of the judicial reforms proposed by the government. The tirade that shut down an entire music festival. Because you are young people, and I'm sure a lot of you are gay. I'm joined by Tortoise editors Jess Winch, Kerry Thomas and Kat Nealon. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. In a moment, uh, you're each going to pitch a story from the past few days that you think really matters. Uh, We'll discuss each one and then I get to choose which leads. Uh, First, though, I wanted to share with you an email about a story we talked about last Monday, um, the actor's strike um, in America, uh, which was about pay, but also the use of AI, artificial intelligence in films. And this is what one person wrote to us to say. I'm a costume maker by trade. Your discussion of the Hollywood strikes ignores the impact AI will have on the jobs of everyday people, crew members, camera operators, makeup artists, stylists, etc. And of course, us costume lot, they say. The involvement of AI not only affects those acting gods of cinema... But with less people to dress, less physical happenings within the industry, thousands of jobs are at risk of being lost. They go on to say, we can work with AI responsibly. No one can stop its arrival, but the power is in the hands of money-grabbing executives who literally don't care about the people who built this industry. Uh, If you want to email us at any time about stories we talk about here or things you think we've missed, do write to us on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Okay, long story short, let's get into today's uh, stories. Give us a flavour of what you're going to talk about in a single sentence. Jess, what's yours? Priest in the rubble. Priest in the rubble. Cat. Mine is, it ain't easy being green. <laughs> okay, thank you. Kerry? I'm going to do the prison that isn't a prison. Oh, okay, the prison that isn't. All right, Jess, let's start with you. What is Priest in the Rubble all about? Priest in the Rubble is the story that in the early hours of Sunday morning, a Russian missile strike hit the cathedral in Odessa, which is a port city in southern Ukraine. It's in the heart of a UNESCO-listed city centre of Odessa. A number of other buildings were also damaged, one person killed, at least 14 injured. And this matters for two reasons. Even by Russian standards, I think, a strike on a cathedral, one that was consecrated by the Russian patriarch back in 2010, is pretty shocking. And 
The Guardian, Sean Walker, was there and he wrote a beautiful piece that I think really brought the whole issue to life. He describes the cathedral's chief priest walking through the ruins in a fluorescent orange helmet with volunteers hauling out chunks of pew, slices of painted angels, remnants of icons, uh, and Sunday services taking place outside with loudspeakers um, sending out the prayers. And uh, it's the second time that this cathedral's been attacked. It was torn down by Stalin in the 1930s. wasn't rebuilt again until after the Soviet Union. But uh, a so it was a modern building, not in its uh, architecture, right. but in terms of when it was rebuilt, right? Yes, uh, and to strike it, and it looked as though it was a, a direct hit. The priest said that it had come, the missile had come right down and hit the altar directly. It started a fire inside. Wow. Essentially, this just seems. This seems to be a story to me that in after a, um, over a year of war, when I think, as you said on previous news meetings, a lot of people are getting Ukraine fatigued. Things just aren't kicking through the mm-hmm. way that they were. An attack on a cathedral of this importance in terms of not just its religious importance, but its historic importance, its cultural significance to the country, I think should cut through. And if you take a step back from the cathedral itself, this particular strike was one of several that have been hitting Odessa and other port cities since Russia pulled out of the UN brokered deal last week to allow Ukraine grain to be exported across the Black Sea, which I know again has been discussed. And that was described, I think, by you as this idea that Ukraine, if you think of Ukraine and the war, is just this big chess game that's being played out. Put that to one side and whatever may be happening with the negotiations of the deal, what Russia is trying to do at the moment by targeting these cities is essentially make sure that Ukraine can't export grain at all, no matter what deal may or may not be revived out of this. And that to me is just the kind of move that you're not playing chess anymore, you're just knocking your opponent's pieces onto the floor. And for both of those reasons, I think that's that's why this story really matters this week. The uh, destruction of... Um, heritage, religious, beautiful buildings, as opposed to your sort of munitions factory, bridge, you know, those kinds of targets. It, uh, you think it, there should be different rules from a media coverage perspective about, you know, how we dial up to make people care? Not necessarily different rules, but I think as this, I think this kind of story gives you a way of telling what's the describing the destruction of Ukraine in a different way in I said this in in a way that can hopefully resonate uh, with the descriptions of it in a way that trying to describe an attack on a munitions factory just it's hard to get across the human the cultural Mm. impact of Mm. it in a way that hitting a cathedral does and what does it tell us about Putin sorry I've I've read that I think that he when the day after this strike happened or or later that same day he was in a cathedral himself in Russia and he lit a candle and he likes to present himself as someone as as a religious leader Mm. and I think you can probably read quite a lot into the fact that he was willing to or that at some point in the um along the line that this strike was allowed to happen. Um, the Russians have denied that it was their missile that hit the cathedral, I should say. They've said that it was the Ukrainian air defense systems. Um, but I think most people aren't taking that particularly seriously, given the volume of missiles that Russia has been firing at Ukrainian port cities over the past week. And have we heard from Zelensky? Yes, he has promised that there would be retribution for this. And today, actually, I think there have been drone attacks within Moscow. So you will start to see that playing out. Interesting. Kat? Um, yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite interested in this. I have to say, in terms of the sort of resonance of it, and and perhaps this 
is sort of my prejudices rather than anything else. I'm sort of less um, emotionally engaged by a building being attacked than by some of the other behaviours that we have seen more recently, some of the sort of arguable sort of acts, uh, sort of war crimes that have been being carried out, the sort of castration of, of mm. soldiers and so on being being the thing that I kind of think has really struck me most. Um, but I'm kind of interested in the sort of dynamics of how this plays out in Russia, um, given, as you say, Putin is trying to sort of position himself as a, a, a man of religion, um, as well as a sort of man of politics. Yeah, I think that's a, and that's a good point. I'm glad you said that, Kat, mm. because I've I find the same challenge. It's a building. I know yeah. it's more than that to mm. lots of people, but I, I, I do have that same uh, sort of block with engaging with it. The thing that I read in the papers this weekend, I don't very often cry at the news, but I really did cry. I cried twice, in fact, this weekend. One was about Evan Davis's story about his wedding and his dad, mm. and the other one was the Russian soldier's diary that had been discovered, yes. which was unbelievably... I mean, tra- traumatic to read, let alone that 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 man. Kerry, what do you make of this? Can you get excited about buildings being destroyed? I, I can't really. I, I think, I, mean, I think, it, but it is interesting. If, in the end, you're right, Jess. If the if this was done on purpose, then it's interesting because it plays out in the way you you say it plays out. But I, but I wonder why, given what you said about Putin, given that he he's positioning himself as a kind of modern day patriarch of Russia, given that he's close to the Orthodox Church in Russia. Why, what's the argument that says he would do this on purpose? I think this is part... I can't, I can't speak to the exact chain of, of command and what brought this to yeah. bear. All I can say is that what Russia seems to be weighing up is that it is willing, as I said, the bigger picture is trying to destroy Ukraine's ability to export grain and destroying this, just the cities across the Black Sea. And if that means possibly... Or, or um, definitively hitting historic buildings, including a very, very significant and historic cathedral, and so be it. I think would be the thinking. Yeah. Okay. We should talk about Evan Davis sometime as well. Yeah. That, was, yeah. that was an amazing piece. Extraordinary, completely yeah. extraordinary. Uh, this was an interview with Decker Aikenhead um, in the Sunday Times and Evan Davis, where he talks about how on the day of his wedding, um, his father took his own life and um, his response to that and how he handled it. And it is the most extraordinary interview and coverage because they share the visuals of the the letters and things that he'd left behind. It really is exceptionally moving and, and, and difficult to read. Well, I was at his civil wedding in France 10 years ago. Oh, were you? Yeah, and I remember his dad making this extraordinary speech. There. And they are, they are this unbelievably rational family. Mm. I've known one other family where... One of the parents said, "I intend to take my own life because, um, because I feel like my life has run its course." Mm. And they, that family, let the parent go ahead and do it. Right. So you ask yourself, "What would I do if it was? Mm. What would I do?" Um, I it's think really it's a, hard. I think How much do you believe issue. in your parents' autonomy? Yeah. How much do you believe that actually now is not the right time? You know, it's. Um, I but I think he, he's done what he's done very cleverly. Is he? Officially, he can't, as a BBC presenter, sort of start a national debate about something, but I think he probably has, hasn't he? Yeah, I think he probably has. I think it's something we're all going to have to confront at some point is, you know, with an ageing population and, and increasingly the quality of life declining, you know, there is certainly, to my mind, a big question about how do I want to go? Do I want to be in control of that? 
you know, I, 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 as a sort of on a rational basis, I can understand. I can't understand the timing of it. That was the thing that I found really mm. difficult. Mm. Because on his wedding day. Yeah. On his wedding day. Yeah. But I think the thing that made Evan sad, according to the article, was that for his dad had to do it on his own. Mm. That's, yeah. the, that's the really yeah. tough thing, isn't it? And, there's, and the, the moment the law insists on that, doesn't it? Cat. Mm. Um, Let's go for your story, please. Not yes. easy being green. It's this not. is a Kermit the Frog story, correct? Well, I am a big fan of Kermit, obviously, as our former Prime Minister. Different kind of Muppets, I Boris think. Boris Johnson <laughs> also created him. Um, but my story is, is really um, in a weekend in which the wildfires have been raging across roads and Corfu, both the main political parties here in the UK appear to be watering down their green commitments. Emma Pinchbeck, boss of Energy UK, has put it quite succinctly. She says they are debating whether to squander the UK's leadership of the clean energy transition for short-term political reasons. And why? Let's just dig into Oxbridge briefly. Going back a couple of days, on Friday morning, we woke up to the results of three by-elections. Now, Labour could have played it differently and and sort of taken the narrative as we won Selby with a 24% swing. You know, we are going to absolutely romp home to victory in the 2024 election. They didn't do that. Instead, what happened was this massive squabble being played out in public about Uxbridge, which they didn't take, although they did reduce the majority that the Conservatives have. And the reason being... uh, ULES, which is the ultra-low emissions zone, being expanded around uh, the sort of outer ring of London. It is a a levy that uh, people are going to have to pay on cars with uh, a certain emission, older cars. And the the Tories successfully weaponised that as part of their by-election strategy. And it it is widely viewed as the reason they clung on in that constituency. Now, the reason why I think it's interesting more than just a by-election, which by-elections often don't really have that much to tell us about a sort of general election trend, is because both the Conservatives and Labour on the back of that now look likely to sort of pivot their position towards the green agenda. So in today's Times, we have Tory retreat from green policies to woo voters. The, the, the focus so far seems to be on motorists. So a sort of a reversal on low traffic neighbourhoods, landlords getting longer to meet energy efficiency targets, something called an Aston Martin exemption to give uh, smaller <laughs> car makers longer to convert to electric vehicles. Um, And I think that's probably just the beginning in terms of the Conservatives. We know that Rishi Sunak has not uh, sort of wholeheartedly or even lukewarmly embraced uh, the green agenda that Boris Johnson, uh, to his credit, actually really did. You know, so far, uh, he is uh, holding firm on net zero goals, but he's coming under a lot of pressure from... uh, sort of senior figures within the party, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Ian Duncan-Smith, even Michael Gove, uh, expressing some sort of scepticism on a, a kind of spectrum of views from we should get rid of this to maybe we should just slow things down a little. And it kind of feels like this is the beginning of a sort of transition uh, away from what has been kind of a decade of green policies. And I think that Frankly, they don't have much leverage at the minute, the Conservatives. Um, So looking ahead to what might be in their campaigns, wedge issues, 
aka things that uh, can be sort of manipulated to uh, make the opposition look like bad guys. And, and you know, from having sp- spoken to several MPs on Friday and over the weekend, it feels like the obvious thing is to say, Labour are going to add hundreds of pounds onto your bills because of their green uh, agenda mm-hmm. at a time when you can't afford it because of the cost of living. And so what you're seeing then on the Labour side is a kind of concern and uh, you, you know, kind of having these conversations about reviewing ULES, um and and sort of perhaps sort of stepping back from some of their other green policies. It was a it seems like a missed opportunity, doesn't it, from a Labour perspective? Not to, as you say, bang the drum for Selby. We've barely heard anything about Selby in the post match analysis. Yeah, um, and instead, it's a, now an examination of whether the Tories who can see the potency of a local policy like ULEZ extension into Uxbridge Mm -hmm. of people saying, I'm here for the green agenda, but not if it costs me money. Yes. And and thinking, how can we play that out on a national scale? And Labour, unfortunately, kind of running scared rather than saying, that was a small thing. Ignore that. It's very local. We've just, you know, we've smashed it in Selby and that's and that's what matters. That's your that's your analysis, basically. Yes, and it speaks to this wider issue of Labour winning in the polls at the minute by default, rather than because of an active reason that people want to vote Labour. It's a negative reason we don't want to vote the Tories. And the Tories know that if they can provide a reason for people not to vote Labour, yeah. as in they will cost you money, yeah. then they're more likely to it's claw back. A very viable some thing. Yeah. Why hasn't? Why didn't Labour have a better line over the weekend in terms of focusing the attention on the wins rather than the loss? I mean, that's that well, is the question, isn't it? They've allowed themselves to be uh, to have the narrative dictated to them. Yeah, because um, this is such a specific policy affecting such a specific group of people. I'm not sure if even if that play of saying this is going to then impact everyone nationwide for these reasons is going to work. I think the problem is uh, for the, for Labour, the expectations are so high for them and, and conversely so low for the Tories that the fact that they didn't have a clean sweep mm. meant that people people are going, well, why didn't you? What's going on here? Oh, look at this. And also, you know, as I say, Conservatives are very, very good at weaponising issues, creating problems in order to sort of uh, sort of um, manufacture a campaign around them. And, and this is kind of, I think, the sort of early seeds of that. So are Labour going to have to resell in a green set, a set of green policies? Because if people are upset about the cars, wait till the heat pumps come. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. That's going to be a hell of a lot more well, inconvenient and expensive. And of course, there is also this thing about what Labour has been doing in terms of uh, the renewed message discipline. So watering down the £28 billion green uh, deal pledge, yeah. um, which again kind of speaks to a fact, uh, speaks to a sort of view that this is important until it starts costing money. Yeah. Kerry, what do you think of this? I think Labour's gone mad and done something really thick over oh, the weekend. No. Yeah, no, <laughs> oh, I mean, God. <laughs> If you look at Uxbridge, they lost by 495 votes. Yes. On the swing they got in Uxbridge, Mm -hmm. they would have won 100 seats at a national election. So it was a good swing. If the students had been there in Brunel University or not on a holiday, they would have won the seat by a country mile. Instead of saying all those things... They've gone off the deep end and, and, and had a go at Sadiq Khan and started calling into question the whole sort of green agenda. In a way, Ulez... Not, this isn't part of net zero. It's like mm. Trump used to do part to water quality and air quality when he was talking, not talking about climate. Yes, yes. This is a, this is an air pollution yes, measure. Yes. It's designed to save lives in London. So, so it's so I, my hope is that Labour will wake up, realise they made a stupid mistake. There is broad 
softish support for a green agenda. Labour find that in all the focus groups they do. So I, I, th- I hope like wiser councils will prevail over yeah, the next... So it does sound as though Sadiq Khan is digging his heels in, but then that kind of creates another narrative that the Tories can manipulate, which is, oh, Labour is still all over the place and arguing with each other all the time. Um, it, it's, it's, I think it's fascinating, as, as Kerry says, just how badly they have played is it, it. Is it. Is the analysis that, oh, it's just a, a, you know, it's a bit of a cock-up, they've sort of had a rush of blood to the head and got distracted, but what can we learn about how it feels to be inside Keir Starmer's Labour Party when they should be just, you know, I'm the clock of the school, <clears> we're <throat> romping home, let's just see this through, and it hasn't happened that yeah. way. You're so. right, it looks like they just don't believe in themselves, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is more of a worry, if anything. Yeah. Jess, do you think that's true? I think they don't want to be seen as complacent, but then there's a fine line between that and looking as though they don't believe themselves. it. Yeah. Um, all right, that's great. Thank you very much, Kat, for your story. We're going to take a break for a moment and then we'll come to Kerry. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Kerry. What's your story and why do you think it matters most? Your long story short was the prison isn't a prison. Okay, so it's not a prison because this is a place called Cookham Wood Young Offenders Institution. So this is a – but in effect, it is a prison. Mm. And it might be, I think, the worst prison in the country. Okay, so where is it? How big is it? Who's in there? It's in Kent. It's for 15 to 17-year-old boys, officially, although there are a few 18-year-olds in there at the moment. Mm And it uh, is for some of the toughest young people in the country. So it's like an overspill youth offenders institution from, from London, taking down to Kent, actually very near to the, um, the village of Borstal, oh, right. where all this stuff started. Yeah. And there was a report out last week, um, a few days ago now, which just, just it makes my blood boil. I don't often get angry with things, but this one, because you don't know whether to get more angry about the cruelty of it or the stupidity of it, really. Mm. So some highlights of the report. What it said was that um, there's been a near total breakdown in in, in behaviour management at this place, that um, there are 77 boys held there at the moment. Right. You could have 120, but they've capped the numbers to try and keep it under right. control. There are five staff members for every young person who's there. So this wow. is not a this is not a story Sorry, of austerity or five, five times 77 360 staff, staff for 77 Whoa. boys. Um and in spite of that, um, you have young young men locked up in their cells 23 and a half hours per day, allowed out to get their dinner and go to the toilet. You had the, the, the inspection found a handful of young of, of boys who had who had been effectively in solitary confinement for a hundred days, hundred days. Gosh. You know, and uh, and the reason for that 
it's partly because weapons have become rife. Sort of these sort of um, they're, they're concocting weapons out of kind of makeshift makeshift weapons out yeah. of two hundred twenty eight of those found in the last few months um, because behaviour has broken down so badly. They're trying. To, they have all these. They have all these measures in place to stop um, some of these children bumping into other children. There are 77 children. There are 600 orders in place, more than like, nine each, to say this person can't be in the same place as that person. Oh, and so even opening the cell door becomes a major exercise because the prison officers have to, have to see who, um, because who's the, around. Because the kids fight with each other. Because the kids will fight with each other because there's no, because there's no control. And, but what really makes my blood boil, I spent the weekend going back over some previous reports yeah. into the same place. So, so in 2009... You've got a report which describes the place as frightening and unsafe, and it still is frightening and unsafe. In 2015, you've got a report that says we're inflicting pain and misery on the boys, and here we're still inflicting pain and misery on them. Mm. And that's what I mean about it being stupid. I mean, mm. It's cruel, obviously. Yeah. But, but the stupidity of doing this with thousands upon thousands of young men over these years, who and many of whom would now be either in adult prisons or out in the community or wherever, and expecting that some good is going to come of this is just absolutely unbelievable forgive, forgive my ignorance on the processes if i go into cook and wood and then i turn my I, i'm in there when i hit my 18th birthday do they take me out of there and put me in a normal prison with the grown-ups that would be the theory so like i said there are a few 18 year olds in yes. there just because problems in the wider estate mm. but in general this is for 15 to 17 year olds and i imagine there's not a lot of rehabilitation going on so it's almost certain that you won't go mm. and live a happy peaceful life after you come out yeah one of, the, one of the things this report was most critical of was that the, the level of rehabilitation was tiny the, the amount of education being delivered is, is pathetic right. and many of these children are getting an average of three minutes of education per day Gosh. so you know we're just setting ourselves up for these not just cost but violence in the future and damage and trauma and what have i hesitate to ask this question because i fear the answer won't be <laughs> not your answer but in general the answer what's the home office got to say about all this well, the Home Office does what he does. He says, we put a new governor, governor in. He's, right. he's doing better. We put more money in. Mm -hmm. So even though it's incredibly well-staffed, we put more staff in. One of the problems is that of the, of the 360 staff, there are 148 what they call operational staff. So they're deployed on the, on the, on yeah. the, you know, to actually look after the boys. Only 65 of those are available for work because the rest have gone sick. And the staff who are there... Um, one of the things the report was critical of was that they're, they're not wearing uniforms properly. They're not they're not looking after themselves. They're not keeping the place tidy. Right. And when you so I, I watched Channel Four News on the evening that this report came out, and and I watched the head of the Prison Officers Association to find out what he would say about this. And the very first thing he said was, "I want to see I want to see the prison minister next week to make the case that we need to be able to use pepper spray on these boys to incapacitate in, in the in to incapacitate them." Who is the prison minister? Alex Chalk. No, Damien Hines. Damien Hines. Actually, it, was, it wasn't the Prince Minister, it was Alex Chalk that oh. he wanted to see. But his case Justice was Secretary. that he wanted to, in effect, inflict more violence on these young people in order to stop them being violent. Okay, the, so it's it's totally broken, this place. Yeah. It's, 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 as you say, cruel and stupid, conceptually and in reality. Um, so whose job is it to sort it out? Where the the union you were talking about, the prison officers' union, what have they got to say about it? Well, I think I find unions like the POA and the Police Federation culturally really interesting because obviously their their job is to look after the interests of their members. You get that, but you would also hope there would be some sort of 
progressive instinct in there that would say that yeah. we do have to show some sort of duty of care or some mm. compassion mm. towards the young people we're supposed to be. These are children. Mm. You know, officially, you know, by any definition, these are children. Do you think Cook and Wood is an isolated case among young persons institutions? I think it's. I think it's probably the, the worst, but I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's the only one. A lot one. of I mean, the kids there are on remand, you said, as well. They're, they're not even been convicted yet. Of, mm. of, I think they're accused of nasty, violent crimes, but they're, they're, yeah. not, they're, they're not convicted I think it is. I think it's probably, it's probably extreme. And I think the question for it really is, do you, is, it's been so bad for so long, do you just have to close it? Mm. Because in the end, some places I think get so sick, so culturally sick, yes. um, um, that the only answer is to shut them down. I wonder if we've reached that point with this place. Um, what's interesting about this story is, and as you say, uh, we knew it was bad in 2009. We knew it was bad. There was a, another sort of point where the same sort of thing happens. People go in, they go, oh, my goodness, it's terrible. Yeah. And then it just I, I mean, every getting year, worse. Actually, every year. And this particular, um, these statistics I recognised from BBC reporting in April, and then again, the same thing. Uh, so it, but no, there's not much, doesn't seem to be much political appetite to go there. I mean, it seems to me it's a feature of life in this country. We, we, we're not deeply caring about these kind of children. No, we? we're really not. You know, which is why I think the stupidity argument might matter, because maybe that's the mm. one that's going to win rather than the, the compassionate one. Jess? Yeah, I mean, as, as you say, I think some of these details were known in April, mm. but I don't think that matters in this case, honestly. Um, the details, when you read them, should make you angry um, and did make me angry when Kerry sent them round. And it's one of those stories that we are not paying enough attention to because we are so busy distracting ourselves with other political rows that arguably have, you know, that don't have as much consequence on people's lives as where, this. Where, where in that we were just talking about where, how the green agenda might morph and evolve and inform the election next year, what, what about criminal justice where are the major parties out on that it's a total mess the prison system is a total mess i mean we you know there there are so many people in prisons that have been kept in cells in jail cells rather than just in prisons um you know backlogs in in getting cases through the the court system you know the fact that we're sort of not even clear who the prisons minister is i the reason i know is because i looked it up over the weekend to make sure i did know because there were four last year there have been 12 since the conservatives came into power at least um it's it's one of those um sort of unloved uh sort of departments where people keep changing all the time and obviously last year was was a, a slightly unusual year in terms of the frequency of, of change but it is one of those things that it's a bit of a poison chalice and it's you know it's it's a stepping stone for the proper job you know um, there are lots of those kinds of jobs a housing minister is kind of one of those as well you know the sort of junior level and mm-hmm. immigration minister and so on and so forth that they're not sort of taken as seriously as the as the job actually um, warrants but my question I suppose to you um, Kerry is we've talked a lot about the sort of what but not so much the why and I can't understand kind of whether had the reports actually gone into any detail of why this is happening is it is it as you say just a cultural thing that's kind of reinforcing and kind of exacerbating itself or is there something that can be done about it other than it's just not shutting money. it down <clears throat> no 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 it's extraordinarily well resourced i mean the, the, the that's why culture interests me because i think in the end you have to reach for something like that to explain why nothing has happened i think it was 2021 there was a report that made 14 recommendations mm-hmm. and this current report says 12 of them haven't been acted on mm-hmm. one has one has been acted on a bit, 12 haven't been done at all. But how do you explain that when you've got 
you know, these official bodies supposedly accountable to government, supposedly able to sort of pull levers, and then nothing happens. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I think I'm really, really keen to go after this story, and I'm really keen to understand the role that but, but the culture of the country in what mm. we think about this, which is going to get politically tougher up to the next election, not easier. Is no, no one's going to mention Cook and Wood no. in the run-up to the next election. But also the culture of the Prison Officers Association and these these institutions that seem to me you know, not at their heart progressive in the right way. Wow. Okay. Um, thank you very much for your stories. Uh, now we're going to do the thing where you have to pick which leads, but you're not allowed to pick your own. Jess? I would lead with Cook and Wood, followed by... Green strategy Tell me why. unraveling. Because this is a lot of um, talk about policy. And this one is a story that I think is deserving of far wider attention and, and action because it is something that is affecting people right here right now. Kerry? I would go with the politics because I think it's, even if I hope it's common sense might prevail, I'm, I'm not convinced it will. So I think that there could be something quite significant happening here. Kat? I'm going to go with Cook and Wood. Uh, because I think it's a mystery as to why multiple reports and many years on from it first being identified as a problem, it's getting worse rather than better. And I and I think it is, perhaps it, it may well be the, the sort of outlier, but it speaks to a wider problem in our society about how we treat people that we'd rather forget about. Thank you very much. Thank you for your pitches. I am going to tell you what I think should lead. I'm going to lead with Kerry's story. I think Cook and Wood leads because, as James says, the news is to choose. I think even though we've known about it, we've not really known known about it. It hasn't made its way right up to the top and to the front pages. And I'm really interested in that void of the of the of the sort of public narrative, the political narrative of what we do. Um, with young people, particularly when we know the correlation between when times are tough, economically, they're getting worse, they're getting harder, people feel they have fewer chances, you know, that there's a causative relationship between those two things. And it's a long, long time since I think we had a sort of constructive, proper public dialogue about what we do with, um, as you say, kids, their boys, who started out without a chance and... um, the way that we're handling them sort of institutionally um, is is making it worse, not better. I would lead with Cook and Wood because um, it's a people story, not a policy story. Second is going to be um, the unravelling of the green agenda. and I, But I, the way I'd want to do that, Kat, is to try and get inside the psychology of the Labour Party in making that really strange decision not to celebrate Selby but to focus on the whoops and what that tells us about how they're feeling inside the operation and I'm going to do Odessa Cathedral third um, not because I don't think it matters because I absolutely think it does and these things are symbolic and totemic and, and meaningful in in ways beyond just a building I, I do get that um, but just because I think in terms of feeling and if the news needs to make your heart beat faster, um, I think you struggle to beat those boys in that, in that Ken institution. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. 
But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Um, so for that reason... The running order this week is Cook and Wood, Keir Starmer, and then um, Odessa Cathedral. Thank you very much, Kerry, Jess and Kat. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, Giles Rattel returneth from his holiday to be in the editor's chair on Friday. So please join him and guests then. And in the meantime, have a good week. Thanks so much. Tortoise. 